0: Well, friends, we have been working through the book of 1 John all summer long. We've, been, we've spent 13 weeks on five chapters, and we have now officially come to the final section of 1 John. But before we officially enter into that, I want to invite you to please bow your heads as we ask God to speak to us through His Word. Let us pray. Lord God, as we come to hear from your word, will you please open our hearts to receive whatever it is that you have to say to us this day. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. But most of all, might we hear your voice and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So in my... uh, in my final semester of college, uh, Rachel and I, we both went to a, so where we met, we both, both went to a small college over in Ohio, uh, it was called Malone University, but anyway, my final semester of college I had to take what was called a capstone class. Have any of you ever had to take something like that, a capstone class in some type of a schooling environment? Well, here's the idea, so for four years I would attended school. I'd taken tests, written papers, I'd given presentations, studied for hours on end, and over the years, I was accumulating all sorts of knowledge, supposedly, right? Well, the capstone class comes at the very end of that, of that educational career with one goal, to make sure that you, the student, can demonstrate the knowledge that, you've, that you have accumulated over the years? Do you actually have the information and the knowledge and the skills that we've been trying to teach you all of this time, and how do you demonstrate it? Now, every, uh, every academic discipline or, or field of study does this differently, right? And so, let's say you are a musician and you study music somewhere. Well, at the very end of your career, you might have to give some sort of a grand recital, right? Or if you study history, you might have to write some huge thesis paper. Or if you are studying nursing, you want to be a nurse, you have to go and have an internship at a local hospital. If you're a teacher, you have to go to a local school, and you actually have to teach a group of students, right? You have to demonstrate, do you actually know or or have the skills to perform the things that we've been talking about all you know, for the whole career of your your time, of your education. The capstone class is where the student proves that they've actually been learning all along. Well, as I said, we've officially arrived at the end of 1st John, and guess what? The verses that we are about to read from 1st John, we could call those John's capstone class. He basically takes some of the major themes from this letter and he wraps them all together in this concluding section. And so John here is essentially bringing up big topics and big themes that he's been talking about throughout his letter and he's challenging those of us who are reading his letter to prove that we actually get it all along. Have we been paying attention? Have we really been absorbing what it is that he's trying to say? And you might not really realize this at first, but when we read this section, I'm going to help you see how the themes that John talks about are connected to all through the rest of 1 John, and then specifically how John puts those into down-to-earth practical living. It's not just about what you know, it's how you apply that knowledge into your daily life. That's what we see John doing at this final section, his capstone class, if you will. Of 1st John and so if you've got your Bibles with you go ahead and open them up to 1st John chapter 5 we're looking at the final section of 1st John starting with verse 13 so I invite you to listen attentively to 1st John chapter 5 starting with verse 13 John writes these these words I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister committing a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, but I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. And we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. So, we're going to take a look at three main themes that John brought up in that passage. And you might say to "Be wondering, hmm, I wonder which one it is. You know, what are these themes that John's talking about? Well, let's just dive right in. The very first theme that John gives us, right there at the opening verse, verse 13, is he says this to us. The first piece of knowledge that I want you to have as your capstone class for this letter is, John says, you have eternal life. This, this, this... Statement. You have eternal life. Take a look at what he says in verse 13 again. What does he say? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that, why? So that you may know you have eternal life, right? It's like this, this reminder. I, I've been writing all of this so that you would know this, that you would, that you would know that you have eternal life. Now, throughout the letter of First John, this is important. John has not been trying to persuade non-believers to become Christians. That's not been his goal in this letter. He's not trying to persuade people who are not Christians to become Christians. That's not what he's been doing in his letter. Instead, he's been trying to convince existing Christians, existing believers, that they actually do have eternal life. He's been trying to speak into current believers and help them come to realize that they really do have assurance of their of faith, that they really do have eternal life. In fact, at the very beginning of his letter, he started off by claiming that Jesus, whom John knew and whom John followed physically on this earth, that he really is eternal life itself, that that Jesus himself is eternal life. He says this at the very beginning of 1 John, the very second verse in the whole letter. He says, the life appeared. He's talking about Jesus. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you, what? Eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. But you see, as we're wrapping up the letter, John's kind of stepping back and he realizes there's a question he's got to ask. The question is this, what's the point? What's the point of having eternal life in the first place? You ever thought about that question? What's the point of even having eternal life? Is it just to live on and 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 on? Never-ending existence, is that the point of eternal life? I mean, I've heard some atheists say that when they hear of eternal life, they just think it sounds like Groundhog's Day, the movie, right? Or this just very boring repetition of going on and on, like, oh, is that really what I'm signing up for if I'm trying to find eternal life? Well, so what's the point of eternal life? Is it just to exist forever? Many Christians, they've never thought about this. And so whenever they do stop and think of eternal life, they just think it means, I don't know, like enjoying their retirement forever, you know? You get to see people you love and play golf on the weekends for whenever you want to. But is that what eternal life is all about? No. No, that's not what eternal life is all about. Eternal life is about so much more. Ultimately, and you're going to see where John's coming with this, eternal life is about fellowship with God. Eternal life is not just about, you know, existing forever. Eternal life is about fellowship with God. In fact, going back to the very beginning of his letter, John says this right after he says that eternal life is seen in in Jesus appearing. He says this in verse 3 of that first chapter. He says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is what? Is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Right? Right? What's the whole point of eternal life? It's about experiencing fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is about fellowship with God. The reason life is eternal is because God is eternal. And if you have fellowship with God, then you are in union with the eternal God. Eternal life is about having fellowship with God and God is eternal and therefore you have eternal fellowship with God. Now remember, John has told us this multiple times in his letter, okay? He's told us this multiple times in our letter. When we start thinking about having a fellowship with God, right? This means having relationship with the God of the universe, being in union with the God of the universe. John has told us multiple times that that relationship is not defined by fear. It is not a relationship of fear, but it's a relationship defined by confidence and love. If you, you know, step back and think about just how amazing this is, because... Our relationship with the God of the universe, you think, ought to be defined by terrifying fear. This, this horrible feeling of, I can't even you know, stand in the presence of God. Our sin should make us unfit to be in God's presence. But the amazing truth of the gospel is that by God's grace and mercy, we can actually have confidence to enter into the presence of the eternal God. And when you connect the dots... You can see that John is explaining that when you have fellowship with God, you can then have confidence with God in your time of prayer. In other words, part of having eternal life is having confidence with God because you have fellowship with God. And you'll see in the letter, if you're, if you're kind of looking through this final passage, John's trying to actually unravel some of the implications of having eternal life. And one of those implications is that you can have incredible confidence in your time of prayer with God. And then John gets very, very specific about a very specific kind of prayer. Now, what is that prayer? Praying for others. Do you see it in those verses? Verses 16 and 17, do you see he starts, he, 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 he talks about eternal life and then he connects it almost directly to praying for other people. And he's basically challenging Christians to do this. If you have eternal life, if you have fellowship with God, what are you doing about it? What are you doing with it? Excuse me. If you have eternal life, if you have fellowship with God, what are you doing with that eternal fellowship with God for others? And John says, You ought to be praying for people. Take a look at verses 16 and 17 again. He says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, but I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, for those of you who are curious, we are not going to spend an enormous amount of time on this, but when John says the sin that leads to death, what he's talking about there is that, the, well, biblically, the only sin that can never be forgiven is a persistent lack of belief. It's a persistent rejection of who God is, a persistent rejection that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and, has, and, and became, was sent to die for sin. So, the only sin that that is that leads to death is the sin that refuses to believe in who God is. That's Jesus calls us in the Gospels the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But this is that's a whole other sermon topic. John even says. I'm not talking about that sin right now. He kind of just says like, yes, I know it exists, but I'm not talking about that. Rather, says John, I'm talking about how are you using your eternal life to pray for other Christians? How are you using the reality that we are all in fellowship with God to lift up in prayer fellow Christians who are struggling in sin, whatever that might be? How are you praying for other people who have already accepted the gospel? How are you praying for fellow believers who are struggling with a sin that does not lead to death? John is basically, he's not holding anything back here. He's saying, you have eternal fellowship with God, so use that eternal fellowship with God to love other people through prayer. Are you praying for one another? I mean, frankly, many of us right now, we're struggling with something, aren't we? We're a Christian. We we, we believe who Jesus is. We seek to follow, to obey God in all that we do. We, We spend time with God in prayer. We're doing what we believe God is calling us to do, but we're still struggling with stuff. Some of us right now, you're struggling with anger. You're struggling with lust. You're struggling with greed. You're struggling with bitterness, resentment, gossip, and on and on and on it goes, right? Who's praying for you? And who do you know who might be struggling with something? Are you praying for them? Now, isn't it sad that in a lot of churches, prayer is the last thing we do when we learn that a fellow Christian is struggling with sin? Right? Instead of praying, we tend to gossip about it, right? Oh, did you hear that so-and-so is... Or we shun them. We're like, yeah, sorry, you, you, can't, you just can't come until you... you know. Or we condemn them or we judge them. We look them up and, oh my gosh, can you believe what he or she's doing? That right? But in, why, why are we doing that? Rather than immediately recognizing that a fellow believer is struggling with something in their life, why aren't we using the fellowship of, with God that we have by going to God on behalf of that person who is actively struggling with sin? Look, if you knew somebody, if you knew someone who was struggling and you had a personal relationship with the one person in the world who could help them, wouldn't you reach out to that person and say, hey, I, I, can, you, can you help this friend of mine who's struggling, right? If you have eternal life, you have fellowship with the God of the universe who can help other people who are struggling. Talk to God about them. Go to God on behalf of another person who is struggling with sin, which, by the way, just as an aside, this is why being in biblical community is so important. If you are not in active relationship, biblical community, small groups, that's what we call it here at Charter Oak Church, the, that's the place to talk about what's going on in your life. That's the place to share with fellow believers what you're struggling with. That's the place where God is often meets us in our gathering with one another. And so, if you are not a part of any kind of a, of a biblical community... I urge you, I challenge you, get yourself involved. Sign up for the All Church Study. Form a small group, right? That's the place where believers come together and share what we're struggling with so that we can pray with with one another. So the first theme, the first theme from our capstone class, John says, is this. You have eternal life. What are you doing with it? And he challenges us to pray for fellow believers. Ready for the second theme? Second theme, John shares with us in his capstone class section is this. You are a child of God. All right? He's talked about this many places in his letter. Perhaps the mo- uh, in verse 19, this is what he says, right? He says, we know we are children of God, right? This is something I've been talking about. I've talked about it many times in my letter. It, he's brought it up actually uh, roughly a dozen times. And the most prominent place is at the very beginning of chapter 3, where he wrote this, he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what? Children of God, right? So he's bringing us back to this theme, we are children of God, you are a child of God. So John is ending this letter by reminding us that what does it mean to be a part, or excuse me, what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to be a child of God? That means that you are now a part of the family of God, that you are a part of the family, and because you are a child of God, and because you are part of the family of God, you are no longer claimed by the power of evil. John is saying, look, you gotta know who your family is, spiritually speaking. You gotta be a part, you gotta know that you are a part of the church, the body of Christ. That is your primary identity. You are a part of the family of God now. You are no longer a part of the evil one. The only way to escape the power of evil is to be claimed by God you know too many times people try to get out of their uh, get out of their, 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 their former life their sinful life they're struggling with things in their life they're, they're claimed by evil if you will and they try to get out of it using their own power but the only way to get away to escape the power of evil is for God's grace to claim you to be a part of his, his family now you confess your faith in Jesus you trust in God's grace and, out of, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to resist and flee the evil one. Now, friends, this topic, that's what baptism's all about. You guys remember what Adriana said when Sean when and Alexis asked her, do you know what it means to be a part of bap- to be baptized? She said, I'm on Jesus' team, right? In other words, to be a baptism is the symbol that you are a part of the family of God. It's the symbol that you are a child of God, that you are now part of God's family. That's what baptism is all about. The vows that you guys made as a congregation, you were vowing to essentially live into this truth. We are children of God. We're going to act like it. We are all a part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are going to care for one another and love one another and serve one another and nourish one another and, and equip one another to be a follower of Jesus. When you enter into God's family through baptism, you are leaving behind the power of evil in your life. You are saying no to the ways of the world from from your past and saying yes to following Jesus. And that's why John says in verse 18 of this section, he says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. Why? Because you've been claimed by God. You You have left the power of the evil one and entered into the power of God. You are no longer under the control of sin. You are no longer under the control of the evil one. Satan cannot harm you using the power of sin and death. Why? Because the power of sin and death have already been defeated. The evil one's weapons were hurled at Jesus and he defeated them on the cross in your place. You are no longer enslaved to the powers of the, of, of, to enslaved to the evil powers of this world. Instead, you are a child of the Almighty God of the universe and you do not have any reason to fear. You have victory over the power of evil. You have victory over the power of sin. You have victory over the threats of the enemy. You are freed to live a life of holiness. Why? Because you are a child of God. John's second point here is this you are a child of God, live like one. Then John wraps up his letter with this final capstone piece of knowledge. First, he says, you have eternal life, use it. Second, he says, you are a child of God, live into it. And third, he says, you know the truth. Verse 20. Second to last verse of the entire letter, he says this. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the one who is true. And therefore, if you know Jesus, you know truth. You know truth. The truth. You know, so much of John's letter has actually been about helping believers realize that they already know the truth of Jesus. He's brought up the theme of truth 15 times in his letter, okay? Only five little chapters. He's talked about truth 15 times. And and he says, he actually says this in in chapter 2. This is what he talked about. He really got into truth in chapter 2. He says, I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, right? He's speaking to people who already know Jesus. But because you do know it, He's trying to remind them, you know the truth. And he's bringing that up again at the end of the letter. You do know the truth. And so then this leads to this question. Okay, so, you know, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, so, I, so John's telling me I know the truth. <laughs> now what? What happens if I really do know the truth about who Jesus is? What happens if I really know who the truth is and I live it out? What then? And that... Is why John ends his letter with the final sentence of verse 21. He says in verse 21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, some of you, you, you might have read that and you're thinking, What? <laughs> Where did that come from, John? You've been giving all these like deep, powerful themes and topics and then you just kind of add on this little postscript at the end, huh? Keep yourselves from idols. What are you doing? But, but when you stop and think about what it means to serve or worship an idol, okay? Or idolatry is the fancy word for this. When you stop and think about what idolatry is, you'll see that this is connected to what John is talking about when he says you know the truth. If Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the true God, an idol is something or someone or whatever who claims to be God but is in fact a false God. So following idols is following falsehood, a false God. Following Jesus is following the true God, the truth. So so John is connecting this idea that if you do really know the truth, then you will also naturally keep yourselves from idols because idols are misconceptions of the truth. They're falsehoods. They're the opposite of truth. Uh, pastor Tim Keller, uh, he's a pastor in New York City, he defines an idol as this An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything more important to you than God is an idol. Because ultimately what that means is, you know, you say God's the most important thing in my life, whatever, whatever it might be. But through your actions and your lifestyle, there's something else that's actually more important than God. And anything that becomes more important than God ultimately becomes an idol because you put that above God in your life. He goes on to explain that you, can, you know you have an idol in your life if there is something so central and essential to you that if you should lose it, your life would feel like it wasn't worth living. If there's something that were if it were taken away from you you felt like my life no longer matters then that is often the sign that there's an idol somewhere in your life something that you're putting above god now this is really hard to think about isn't it because there's so many things that we put ahead of god in our lives both consciously and unconsciously we idolize things simply by making them more important to us than god we idolize our kids we idolize our reputations we idolize our health We idolize our jobs, our denominations, our doctrine, our politics, our success, our numbers, our control, our choice, our freedoms, our... You fill in the blank, right? But wherever there is sin in your life, there's going to be an idol somewhere behind it. Sin often shows itself when we are idolizing something other than God. Wherever there is sin in your life, there is an idol behind it. So for example, if you make power an idol. If you, want, if you are someone who is longing to be in control and that becomes an idol in your life, you're going to be somebody who struggles with the sins of anger or pride or arrogance. If you make sex an idol, you are going to be somebody who struggles with lust or manipulation or hatred or addiction. If you make money an idol, you might find yourself struggling with greed or insecurity or selfishness or possessiveness if you make your doctrine an idol, your politics an idol, you might be someone who is obsessed over being right that you fail to love other people. The first step to discern the idols in our hearts. We got to, That's the first step. You've got to discern what are the idols in our hearts. What are the things in our lives that are more important than Jesus? What are those things that we are replacing with the true God? But you've got to be careful when you do this. Because if you claim that you do not have an idol in your life, you're you're kind of claiming that there's no sin in your life. (laughs) If you claim that there is no idol that you're struggling with, that's sort of a sign that you're saying that I don't really have any sin in your life. And remember what John says at the very beginning of his letter? He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the what is not in us? Truth. Truth capstone you know the truth if you don't know the truth you're often going to deceive yourself thinking that you do not have sin in your life so john ends this letter imploring christians who do indeed know the truth he's telling them you know the truth therefore be on guard against the false gods in your life you know the truth rid yourselves of idols so john ends his letter by saying, you have eternal life. Use it for others. You are a child of God. Live into your identity. You know the truth. Rid yourselves of idols. We covered a lot of ground, friends, in 13 weeks. And as we wrap up this letter, I want to challenge you to be thinking about which one of those three things do you find yourself needing to work on in your own life, in your own walk with God? Which one do you need to make a matter of prayer? Which one are you going to talk to a trusted friend about? Which one are you struggling with and need to reach out to for help or guidance? You have eternal life. You are a child of God. You know the truth. Which one do you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart that I need to take a little bit more seriously in my life? Friends, I hope this series over the summer has helped you have a deeper understanding of this little letter in the back of our Bibles called 1 John. And I hope it has helped you to come to see just how deep the Bible is. Because the more you dive into the scriptures, the more God will transform your heart. In fact, I want to challenge each of you right now. Go home today and reread the whole letter of 1 John in one sitting. You can do it in 10 minutes. Reread the whole letter of 1 John and just see and step back and see how all of the themes we've talked about this summer are connected to one another. You won't regret doing this, because when you do, you will see that God uses his word to transform our lives in powerful and mighty ways. So friends, as we wrap up this series, may you remember these three things. You have eternal life. Use it. You are a child of God. Live into it. You know the truth. Claim it. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you for the ways that you have spoken to us through your book, through your word, and specifically through the letter of 1 John. May you continue to lead us and guide us as we seek to follow you and serve you in all things. We thank you, O Lord. We praise you and we ask that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.